All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Unpaved Bill from Team Supreme, here to give you the latest Questlove Supreme classic episode. Back in October of 2016, Alan Leeds was our fifth guest on QLS. That conversation, which I encourage you all to check out, has been re-released. But even three hours with Alan was not enough. In 2020, he came back for a two-part interview. Last week, we ran part two, which you also need to hear. Now, here is Alan's third QLS episode, which first aired March 25th, 2020. In this final of three parts, Alan talks a lot about his years with James Brown. There's some really great stuff, especially if you're a fan of Prince, D'Angelo, or Chris Rock. Alan Leeds definitely deserve three QLS episodes, and we're happy to share them with you. Episode 102. Enjoy. Okay, so you you walked us thoroughly through uh, prime, early, younger James Brown in the, in the beginning. So... Is it mustache uh, James time? No, no, no. I, I, well, I actually want to skip because it's more about the, the the business of tour managing than anything. Um, and this stuff I really didn't get to touch upon the last time you were here. So, I mean, assuming that by the numbers, I would I would think that Prince was your biggest artist, at least by the numbers, yeah, touring wise. Yeah. So when you're okay, so when it's like okay, we're going to tour. What is step number one in tour managing? At least by the '80s contemporary version, which I which I assume hasn't changed much now, except for the communication. Probably not, but it it a lot of it depends on your relationship with the artist and his personal his or her personal manager. Because you, you take three tours, and the chemistries can be three different things. Um, most tour managers don't get involved in routing or dealing with the agents. I did. Um, I knew routing from having done it for five years with Brown. I knew arenas. I knew buildings. So Farnoli let me deal with Rob Light, mm-hmm. and we would sit and, and Rob Light is for audience agent okay, at the cool. time, and the tour promoters, which were usually Jeff Sharp. Mm. and Quentin Perry as partners 
Wait, Jeff Sharp even goes back to the early eighties? Oh yeah. Damn. Sure. Okay, I I know Jeff Sharp from my my days of like smoking grooves and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that he was early eighties into the Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, Shout out to Jeff Sharp. What's up, man? Yeah. He okay. Was, he was um he was independent and he had his own company. It was long before AEG. Right. Which he's now. Right. You know. Latinwood. But um and we would sit down and talk about, okay, you know, how many days do we want to play in certain cities? And, you know, Sharp and the agent would do their research and come back and say, okay, Baltimore's worth two nights, Philly's worth three nights, Detroit's worth six nights. And then we would sit there and digest that. And uh, then we would decide what we wanted to do with that information. Do we want to underplay it? Do we want to sit in Detroit for a week? Um, and then... You know, we would route a tour. So most tour managers don't do that. They just get an itinerary from the agent and says, this is where you're going. I know I know. with an artist like Prince, who was kind of hands off as far as you getting to know him. And so you, or I guess the last time you were, you were saying that, Chick was like, if you ask him any questions, he'll think you don't know what you're doing. Right. But it's like... Well, one the the narrative of the of the purple rain phenomenon, which I would assume was unprecedented to everyone on how successful this is going to be, or not. I mean, the movie could have came out and did Cherry Moon numbers, right? And then it's like, well, does he have life? Right. I would assume that the success of the movie meant more dates had to be added, and oh, sorry, so, it was crazy. So then I'm. I'm thinking, are you like, okay, well, this guy likes to do these mammoth three-hour shows. Uh, Maybe we'll let him do three nights and then get time off the rest. Oh, sure. Or would he say, no, work me to the bone. I want to. No, no, no. He would, would, you know, I mean, what you described about not asking too many questions applied when I was new, before he really got to know me. Okay. But from then on, it was like, wasn't a problem. I mean, we would talk about anything that was necessary to talk about with no hesitation. I mean, the the, the tiptoeing. So, would it start thing, with him? As in, how many nights do you want to do? How many yeah, nights do you ex- want off? Exactly. And a person that's addicted to recording would wouldn't he want equal time off to like? Okay, well, let's do four nights on the road, and but then you have this large tour on your back right. so you have to make money exactly exactly yeah every every night off the meter's still running everybody's in hotels the trucks and buses are still running everything's was he fina- there, was so. he financially aware or was he sort of aloof yeah, and I mean, it pays for itself somehow yeah he wasn't really financially aware in those day, in the days i was there i mean he, he radically changed that in time past, I mean, we, <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, I wish I could have seen the eye roll we just did. Um, his 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 whole attitude in my era because we used to beg him to try to cut costs, and because I mean you're doing this phenomenal. I mean, I'll flash forward to Love Sexy, a tour that barely broke even. If in fact it did, probably lost money. I never saw the final accountings of the tour, but. Um, you know, it's a very, very expensive tour to mount. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can get rich off that tour. I mean, it's a legendary tour for the production value of it, but it was financially not successful. Purple Rain was. I mean, you, that phenomenon was Beatlesque. It was crazy. 
just and absolutely you didn't have to crazy. lug a car around. True. <laughs> so starters. I would I would also think that uh, he didn't care his attitude, sig- his attitude toward money. Every time we'd go to say we can't afford it, he said, "But I pay you guys to find the money. I want this. So figure it out." So there wasn't logic at all. It was just make it happen. Yeah, pretty pretty much. This is what I want. Make it happen. I see. Okay. So, not to compare the two, one of the one of the prevalent problems of the Voodoo tour was that if D'Angelo ever went super hard with his voice, mm-hmm. uh, there might be the risk of us canceling mm-hmm. the next night. Whereas Prince, well known for his screaming and use of his voice, I mean, were there ever problems of like ah, his voice gave out tonight? We have to cancel the show and. It was never a major concern. I mean, having said that, there probably were times where his voice was in less shape than it was. Or even usually. a cold. Like, yeah. I mean, De- yeah. the but, drop but, of a feather, D'Angelo's like, oh, I cancel the shit. Right. But with Prince, was Prince more ride or die, James Brown? Like, yeah. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could be yeah. sick. Yes. So yes. he did Purple Rain shows even yeah. with. Absolutely. Yeah. With a hurt knee and, you know, cold and, you know, I mean. Which, Nothing stopped it. What, uh, it was a, I think it was a TV performance where like he hits himself in the face with the, the mic. Grammys, and, yeah, where he, yeah. Like, and he did the whole set with like a mouthful of blood or something like that. Well, yeah, he, Susanna said that he uh, busted yeah. his lip mm-hmm. doing um, that. No, he was a trooper. I mean, you had to give him so many days off. I mean, I don't think we ever did more than three on before we took an off date, and we tried to do two, one, two, one, but there were threes. But I don't really think we did more than three. Um, starting with Purple Rain, 1999 tour, he was doing five and six a week. But um, but starting with Purple Rain, it was a little less often because it was a it was a strenuous show to do. I see. So then, how do you 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 route at the beginning? Yeah. So you built that into the routing. And assuming that, okay, well, I know that those Christmas shows were in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So you assume yeah, that he that wanted was, to be home that for was Christmas. Not an accident. Yeah. Of course. Okay. Yeah. And gave the band. Assuming that the band also lived in Minnesota as well mm-hmm. as well. So. And afternoon shows, I think. Like. Yeah, I think we did. The, we did do a couple matinees. I think. And I, I know we did one. It was either Christmas Eve day or Christmas day. I'd have to go look. I don't really remember. So even then, it was like not take Christmas off? It was? No, because that's, that's, a, that's a big ticket. And, and again, you can – I think we were off Christmas Day. I think the matinee was Christmas – I don't know. It was either Christmas Day or Christmas Eve Day. But, you know, this is – when you're on tour, you know this, and, mm-hmm. and the meter's running – you got to be very strategic about where your off days are because the matinee they, was they on cost. Christmas Eve. Okay, yeah. So, but thank you, sir. The I thing is, because, com. see, Bill <laughs> is very the most organized person. <laughs> That's why he's here. <laughs> wait, ah, wait. I just had an important question about. Okay, so well, what I'm trying to get at is when handling uh, what I call monkey wrenches or eleventh hour avoid a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think with Purple Rain, uh, the when did he get the ideas that he wanted to take off days to, to do shows at uh, for deaf children 
at deaf uh, at deaf schools. That we kind of built in from the beginning. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't just deaf. We we did Gallaudet College in Washington D.C., which is a university for hearing impaired people. Well, hearing impaired has now become in this woke era. You're not supposed to say hearing impaired. So can you say that? Um, what do you say? Deaf. Oh, I always said deaf. Yeah, I didn't know hearing impaired was. Trust me, Tristan I, corrects I, me on a regular basis. Okay, it's, it's like dad, dad, don't say that. That's not cool. Was it his relationship um, with Tristan that it? I've often wondered if that influenced it, um, because certainly he knew Tristan by then, and there's a possibility that maybe because Tristan would hang out, they'd shoot hoops sometimes, and he'd go in the studio how is, with him. How old is Tristan now? Forty-five. Wait, what? Yeah. In my mind, Tristan is still like 16 years old. <laughs> Wait, I wasn't ready for that shit. Wait, Tristan's 45? 45 years Tristan's old. a man. Yes. Tristan. Was... Oh, he acts like it. There's, he, there's no mistaking he's a man when you talk to him. But... Dude. No, he's, he's D's age. That's how I always remember. Ah, in my mind, Tristan is. I think you want to be like, oh, he's 29 now. Like, Forty freaking five! Shit, um, I didn't realize it. Okay, so at the beginning of this happening, like, was he aware of who Prince was? Like, was Tristan? Well, at the time he was. I mean, if he's five he years was, younger than me, then yeah, he was seven, eight. If he wasn't, he became aware pretty quickly. I mean, certainly by Purple Was it like Rain. this dad's client? Okay. Or? He, was, he was born in 74, so Purple Rain was what? 80, 84. 84. 10, so 10. he's 10 years yeah, old. Yeah, he would have known. And, and he knew who Prince was. Definitely. And dad's in a movie. <laughs> okay. You know? Right. 10-year-old kid, dad's in a movie. I see. So... So, um, so at so, the so time... But, but his relationship, I mean, Prince had seen him and met him. But it was later that they got close. When, once Paisley Park was up, which is, of course, several years past Purple Rain, but once Paisley Park was up mm-hmm. and Tristan started spending more time with us in Minneapolis, he would come out with me and, you know, I'd be going to work and he's like, can I hang out? And, yeah, come on if you want. And he'd spend the whole and day would allow that? Yes. Okay. He'd take him in the studio and play him stuff and sit and ask him, like, okay, what do you hear? What of this track? Can you feel the bass part? Can you hear the drums? Can you hear the guitar? Because he was always interested what is in... It, what is his degree His degree of hearing? Because... Quite deaf in the higher registers. Okay. But his hearing is maybe 50-50 in low registers. Okay. So it's perfect for hip-hop. He hears bass Bass and, and drums, baby. Okay. And, and I'll never forget... This is really off the beaten path, but I'll never forget we were riding in a car... And Alexander O'Neill's fake, fake, uh, yeah. fake, fake All right. came on the radio. Can I get some nasty bass? We were listening to KMOJ was on the radio. You can hear that song coming from a mile away. And <laughs> Tristan, what year would that have been? He'd been being his low teens, 10, 11, 12 years old. And he's like, Dad, that sounds like fake. And I almost drove off the road. <laughs> And that's when I realized that he had not just enough hearing, but also the musical sensibility to recognize a song just based on, and it wasn't even jacked up loud. So it was definitely bass and drums, whatever the patterns were. And it really, it it changed our lives because from that point on, you know, it, it was, 
it was very awkward to have somebody who lives and breathes a passion for music can't to have a child that you can't share that with. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, it's not about me. It's about him because you don't want it to appear that something that he can't get into is so important to dad because that creates a void. It, it creates a feeling of inadequacy, which is the last thing you want him to have because the whole, the whole idea of raising a child who has a hearing problem is that you can do anything except hear. And we're not going to give you a pass because of that. You're going to get out of the car and go in the store and get what you want. And if you have to write a note, whatever the hell you have to do to communicate with the store clerk or wherever the hell we are, you're going to do that. And that's how we raised him. And and he is totally self-sufficient, and you know, as a result. And you're not going to get any sympathy. It's like, you know, this is is the world. This is the world. And you got to function. And I ain't going to be here forever. Okay, so the idea that music was so important to me was awkward because I didn't want him to to sense how important it was so as to feel like an outsider or that he was somehow inadequate. So when he started recognizing songs, I'm like, oh, shit. I mean, this, this, this was a kid when he was like five years old. We would look at it. He would see a Funkadelic album cover. Of course, he was attracted to Parliament Funkadelic album covers because of the graphics and everything. The this, yeah. And he's five years old, and he'd go, Dad, Dad, Crazy George, Crazy George. <laughs> 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 so, so he had the disease. It was in him. And, and now he sends me YouTube clips of bands that I've never heard of. He turns me on the more shit that I mean it's it's, it's crazy um, but anyway we're totally off the beaten path no but, I, um, I'm t- wow I'm still mind blown that he's in his 40s <laughs> yeah <laughs> so am I <laughs> that's, that's crazy so okay so I mean, I'm, it, I'm it's also hard, a, it's hard to explain to people that I could have a son 45 and that, that he was born when I was only 10 that's, <laughs> there you go you know. also I, I guess I have to take into account that Prince rarely got a no in the 80s if he wanted something done. Correct. Or I pay, I pay you to figure it out. <laughs> it's just, yeah, you would yeah, have to I, figure I, it I'll out. I'll give you a story. I don't know if we, if you cut me off if we did this before, but, but this, is, this is a metaphor for everything about Prince. You remember the Alphabet Street video? Oh, yeah. You did tell us a story. I did? Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can go back and listen to that one in the in the Questlove Supreme yeah, Archives. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. So that's that's a prime. Is yeah. there any other? Well, I, I, oh, there was at least one a day. When but, when, but, did, <laughs> when did the after shows? I mean, the earliest after show I've heard was eighty six. Well, the sign. Well, there was a parade. There's a few parade ones in Europe. Yeah. But well, what there, was was, the, there was one in a hotel bar in nineteen ninety nine tour. I think we were. In I have that somewhere. One. Well. Where he just crashed a hotel bar that had a band and just decided to take over, and they were fine with that. It was Prince. Yeah, it was Prince. Had, no, he, was yeah, it Prince? Yeah, he was like, "Who's this guy?" No, no, it was Prince. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we, we have a. I think one of the earliest ones we have is a. There's a Sam's Club, where oh, yeah, he yeah. debuts. All the critics love you in New York, and remember he said, "This is this is just a dance." Yeah. Oh, so obviously. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that was an after show from that. That's a great show, by the way. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I'm trying to find. I don't know if it exists, but there's one. Uh, 
I think uh, Ja Wobble was playing at, at First Avenue that night, and uh, he got up on stage with, with uh, Prince got up on stage with him. And the bass? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was like, yeah, um, and he licked the guitar <laughs> strings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no <laughs> Prince. No, we, 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 we were in a club in Paris. This was in the, the, the pre-Cherry Moon experiment of going to Paris to see if he liked it and would we shoot in France. And we were, it was Farnoli and Prince and me and I forget who else, maybe Jerome. And we spent a week in Paris just to hang out and see if Prince liked it. See if he could survive it. it. Yeah. And he spent most of the time in his hotel suite with the keyboard that we went out and bought the first day we got there, um, writing music, most of which ended up as part of the Cherry Moon mm -hmm. and Parade album and so on. But um, long story short, we were in some crazy club that was like a a low rent version of Moulin Rouge. They had they had dancing girls that were exotic. It, was, it wasn't an outright titty bar. I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. you know it, it wasn't sleazy. But they were hot girls who wore abbreviated outfits. <laughs> you know, abbreviated. Outfits. I don't know how you say that. That's um, good. I mean, they had clothes on, but barely. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, but it was it was just a little Parisian lounge, and it, it 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 you know, and for some reason he liked it, and. So we went there a couple of times, and they had a little combo. I think it was like a three-piece combo of three local musicians that played corny stuff. They were terrible. And he just, one night he looked at me and he said, would you ask him if I could play? And I don't think those musicians really knew who he was. I mean, they were they were older guys, and they were like the French version of the De Felice Trio or something. Right. You know, <laughs> they were just really, really cheesy. And he just decided he wanted to play. I don't know if he wanted to impress one of the dancers or what, but he got up there and he played and sang two or three songs. I can't even tell you what they were. He it, just started band leading? No, there was no band. They, they, he just went up there and did a solo set. He knew those songs? Oh, he did a solo yeah. set? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Damn, that was a treat. At, at Maxim's in Paris, France. Yeah, in it, August, wasn't, it wasn't Maxim's. Or, it wasn't? Oh, no, okay. it was actually called Le Milliardaire. Oh, okay. Okay, that one's not here on that list. No, nobody knows. It was just uh, off the cuff. probably the first time it's ever been mentioned. Yeah, I, there's so in one of those rehearsal tapes, I realized that his level of wanting to play, no matter who was on instruments, uh, <laughs> I know what you're going to talk was, about. Th there's all right. So there's there's a a tape of a 45 minute jam. Like here's the thing. I love and respect the three of you in this room, but I don't know if I would put two hour effort into for us to have a jam session. Right. Because I could sort of imagine what the result would be with just mm -hmm. the four of us in this room. Put me on drums, I'll be all right. But, all right, so Vanity's on keyboards. Jamie Shoup is on drums? I think. Jamie Shoup is on drums. Vanity's on keyboards. Uh, I think Fink is on another keyboard, and mm -hmm. Prince is basically trying to teach them how to jam or how to play. Okay. What if the three of us were cute girls? <laughs> Would you? I never met Jamie Shoup until like So in her heyday, Jamie Shoup was... Are you saying she's not fine now? Yeah, in, she in a non-me-too-ish way. <laughs> no, no, no. I, just, I, just, I don't... 
I don't know what. I don't know. I mean, no, it's, Jamie was hot and she had a cool personality. She was. Fun. She was going to be one of the hookers, wasn't she? Yeah, that's right. right. There yeah. you go. Absolutely. So she had to be hot. Yeah. I, I I forgot. Yeah. That she was a hooker. H word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for those that don't yes, know, yeah, yeah, for, those, say, for those that yeah. do not know, <laughs> before before Vanity before they were called Vanity Six, before Vanity Six was formed, Prince was going to form a group called the Hookers. The Hookers, and uh, the lead with Susan Moosey. Yes, and her older sister. Yes, and um, the Gee. lead the lead singer was going to. Their stage name was going to be the Vaginas. Vagina, yeah. yes. Or that, yes. yeah. Wow, yeah. That obviously did not work, so they they changed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but the thing is, is that he sounds just as happy, and oh, he's got Al Bolu. How do you say? It? I see. I thought that was no, you. No, no, no. It's Alan Bolu. The photographer. Photographer. Yeah. He's, he play, he's, playing he's bass. also playing as well. He's playing bass. But he, so that he, obviously means he has photos from that. Probably. Shit. And it or, also means that his story of him uh, coming up with the riff for Let's Go Crazy is probably true as well. Damn. Wow. Good one. Good That's one. good. Good one. Yeah, but my whole thing is that. Well, if Bolio was there, they probably were shooting something. It could have been promo pictures for God knows what. Okay. Because he wouldn't, I mean, they weren't that close that he was just going to be hanging out. So he was going to work capacity. Hey, come on over to the house and play bass. I mean, that wasn't going to happen. So th- he must have been there with a with a photographic purpose that then turned into, you know, maybe they drank a little wine. And... But my question is that he just, for him, any jam session was the equivalent of talking or... I'd yeah, rather maybe. try to play music with you than the yeah. small talk. Yeah, or, or maybe, maybe after your tape runs out, he starts making fun of him for not being able to play. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> also that. You I know, see. There's no, the, well, the, there's the, the famous Bruce Springsteen cameo on one of his shows. And I heard this on the way back to the dressing room. He's looking at me and he's bouncing up and down. I told you he can't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that Prince. <laughs> I have that. I, I, I thought he was cool. I mean, Bruce hung in there. But, okay, in your observations, uh, I always thought that major towns were not as good as the smaller towns as far as show is concerned. Because... Are you think specifically for Prince or in general? In general, but yes, also for Prince. Uh, based on the Purple Rain shows, none of the LA shows were exciting to me. I have a theory. I think that if people are watching you, and this has been for every show I've ever done in L.A., and stars come out, mm-hmm. girls you like her in movies, and on television show, they're in the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think that shows in front of celebrities freezes the artist, whereas towns that you have low expectations, you bring out your, your A game. I don't think it's the artist. I think it might be, you know, the major publications are there. You know, they may, they may you know, New York Times may send a reviewer out or a Rolling Stone or somebody. Well, well, in that case, the Minnesota must be a nightmare because John Bream is there watching <laughs> yeah, his every right, movie. Exactly. Was, that, was the rivalry with John Bream really real or was it like playful? And He got tired of John Bream at one point and, and they kissed him made up. You know, it, okay. was, it was like it wasn't a, C, a was, Cynthia Johnson release. It was, really, it was kind of no, it was kind of a Trumpish moment. It was like you're not loyal. You oh. actually wrote something negative. You're not loyal. Fake news. <laughs> okay, you know, you of all people, John, 
you were there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You got you're supposed to stay loyal. You know, Nelson George can write something bad. I might make a record about it, but we'll you know, I expect it, but not from you. Not from uh, yeah. like John's from the hometown. So yeah, you're supposed you were, to. You were there from the beginning, and you wrote great things from the beginning, and you were way ahead of everybody else and recognizing. I see. Whatever. So I, th- I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm surmising. But I see. Um, I mean, in I, your I, years of tour managing, what was your favorite period? Like, do you have a fond memory? The travel was great. I didn't have to, you know, fix a situation. It was, you can know. I, can I hit your your pause button for a minute? Yes. And rewind for a second. Okay. Back to the the intimidation factor of of playing big cities. Okay. And I think Bill's right. I mean, certainly the, the the fact is you can't, unless you're remarkably disciplined, if you know there's a media focus on what you're doing, if you know there's people in the audience whose opinions you care about or are trying to impress for one reason or another, then you're going on stage with all of that somewhere in your head. Even if you can kick it to the rear burner, it's still there. So instead of going on stage in your normal zone where all you're thinking about is the music and who you're playing it with, mm-hmm. that it, it, it just makes sense that that would affect you. Now, there's some people who could overcome that, um, but I think about Miles Davis used to say, and this was in, I think, Quincy the Miles Davis autobiography, talks about the fact that he could always tell when anybody in his band either were looking at a girl in the audience or their old lady was there. Because they'd show off, they'd play different, they'd overplay. Mm. And he said, you used to drive him crazy. Got him to the point where he told Jack D. Jeanette, do not bring a woman into these clubs. Really? Yeah. Now, it's Miles probably exaggerating a little bit. No, he's telling effect, the truth, though. But, but, yeah. He's telling the truth. Yeah, and, like, and particularly in the context of, of a jazz quintet, mm-hmm. where it's so much of it is improvisational, as opposed to... A Prince concert where the band is pretty much playing the same thing night after night. Um, it would be that much more noticeable. And, and I suppose it's human nature. It's, it's you know. You're right. You know, we all look in the mirror once or twice extra if you're going to see somebody you really care about. Okay. So anyway, back to your question. What um, was your favorite period of tour managing? Or what was the easiest? <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. What was the easiest, like, just well, laid I, back? I suppose physically you would say Chris Rock. Okay, I can see that. Okay. Because there's, there's five grown men who are responsible, mature, flying on private jets, staying in Ritz Carlton's, and nobody has to wake anybody up. Nobody misses the plane. Right. Um, the only time we'd ever spat was who gets the art section of the New York Times first on the flight. <laughs> you know. Um, now the gig was was. You think the gig is easy because it's stand up. There's no production. There's at least very little. But the other side of that coin is with that with that tour you're wearing because you don't have a staff. You're out there by yourself in, in terms of management. Mm-hmm. And you're wearing every hat. So you're overseeing the production. You're overseeing the local crews that do sound and lights. You're overseeing um, 
the promoters. You're overseeing the settlements. You're doing the settlements. Um, I would assume that you do and the settlements doing, anyway, though, right? Yeah, but but. Or do you send someone? But here, here's here's the point. If I'm on a D'Angelo tour and I got a do settlement, I just tell Bill Reeves I won't be around for now, or I'm going up front. If you need me, hit me on, the, you know, text me. I'm in the box office. Okay. Okay. But with Chris, you're scared to leave because there's no backup. Who's in charge? There's no backup. I see. Okay. You know, so it got to the point where his personal assistant, who really had nothing to do with the shows themselves, but was just his personal assistant. Um, I would always have him, if, if, if I'm going up front, I would say, okay, you got to keep your Watch eyes on the, the stage. But also, I mean, Chris is A-level celebrity, so it's just the five of you? Yeah. But he's A-listy, so but like... Who else does he need around? No, he's, he's got a personal security. Assistant. He's got one security. Oh, okay, no. He's got um, his personal assistant. There's Chris. There's the opening comic who usually travels with us, the support act. Mario. And myself. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Okay. That's it. And um, and I'm still doing the other things the tour manager does, which is do all the advancing with the venues wherever we're headed next and making sure this is set up and that's set up and make sure the cars are right and make sure the, 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 the staying in touch with the pilots in the airports and knowing what the flight conditions, you know, all the shit that goes with the logistics and hotels. And, and is that always that. having a plan B? You're looking at the weather app, and it's raining yeah. in Tennessee, and we might have to take a bus yeah. to... Yeah, or either we're just going to sit here and wait for the rain, depending on forecast. So, yeah, you always have to keep your eye on, on the weather. Okay. That's just part of it. So that's the easiest. What's the most historical... Um, let me say this. It, it's, it's a lot of work. It's long days. And Chris is, is one of the few comics I know who actually insists on doing sound checks, as, as you know, because you, right. you've been there. So, you know, so the date starts at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It doesn't end till midnight um, by the time we've done settlement. Frequently, the show would be down, but I would still have business and have to stay back and wouldn't get to the hotel until an hour later. So th- there, was, there was a workload, a okay. serious workload, but it was, but it was not stressful. Because you didn't have to worry about a knucklehead bass player who won't get up right. or disappears, and you know, damn that Paladino. No, I'm playing. <laughs> I'm playing. <laughs> so. No, that's actually the one band where it wasn't the bass player. Historically, it's always been the bass player that's a knucklehead. I can oh, name it so many Mark. Tours. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the case with D. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In that case, the bass was the responsible yeah. person. Drummer was pretty good. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. We'll know. see. He had his days, but, but right. But he showed up. <laughs> yeah, right. What was? What did you feel was the most historical? In hindsight, what was the most historical run you did? It had to be Purple Rain. So you consider that more historical than the night that like Sex Machine came together, or? Well, you're comparing a six-month tour to a one-night gig. Yeah, I mean, apples and you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, was there a historical significance of Sex Machine? Of course. But, you know, that was— What did was, you feel was historical as it was happening? Because that's rare to know that nothing. you're capturing— 
So for you, I was relieved that he could take this new band that had its weaknesses and go in and cut what so obviously was going to be a smash hit. So it was really relief. Okay. Because because the jury is still out on whether or not they were still good. Exactly. I mean, we knew Boots and Catfish were keepers. That wasn't hard. But Clayton Gunnels and all those cats were. Yeah. Right. I, I see. I see. Do you have any regrets or places that you haven't gone to or things that you haven't done yet tour wise or I don't think and what's so. the, well damn Not okay really. I, I know with the exception of the d word you were, but what stopped you from the next level like what kept you at tour manager as opposed to let me get a nine to five at you could have easily worked at William Morris. No, I'll I'll tell you a conversation I had with Bob Cavallo. When I took over Paisley Park Records, Bob called me, and he was on the way out because it was around the same time that Prince cleaned house, a little bit after I took over the label. 91, 92. No, no, no. Rewind. When he cleaned house and fired his lawyers, his business managers, and his personal managers, Steve Farnoli and Bob Cavallo, Mm -hmm. when he fired them, that's when I actually went to him and said, okay, I need a vote of confidence. If I next, you're cleaning house, and I just need to know what the hell's going on. Well, have I told you you're fired? No, but, you know, what up? Time out. What did he do the firing? It was January 2nd of 19... After Graffiti Birds. 89. Before Graffiti Birds. No, it was after Love Sexy. Okay. Before Batman. But I'm saying, would yeah. he himself do it? No, he said he sent. He had he had another attorney who sent letters. He had already cooked up the deal with Albert Magnoli to be his manager. They had hatched this plan. Okay. Magnoli introduced him to a new lawyer, who then issued the cease and desist, or whatever you want to call them, the the notifications that I'm breaking away from you guys. I'm only asking because, all right, I've maybe in the last two years, I've had to fire six people from my camp. And that's one of the most painstaking, sure. awkward, especially when you're like super close to them. Mm-hmm. This week alone, last Saturday, I had to fire someone that's worked for me for like ten years, and it was like it was like asking for a divorce. So I always wanted to know, like, literally, like, is he going around asking for advice? Like, how do you let someone go? How do no. you? Because he, first of all, he didn't personally do it. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. I thought you had to do it yourself. Like no, he was a punk like that. I mean, just <laughs> being blunt. Wait, should you? If you were to, all right. No, so I you're mean, in a boss he, position. He had, he had me fire people. I was going to say you've. I'm sure you've had to fire many a person. Not many, but yeah, right. Sure. But is there? What's the proper way to do so? Because the thing it, is, it you're really, such a, you're such a paternal. It really fatherly figure. It depends on who it is and what the relationship is. It really does. Um, we had a road manager on a tour, and I'm not going to say which one, who was out from the beginning of the tour, and he was going to be the road manager and my tour manager. Can you say the tour? Or um, that would give it away. That gives it away. Never mind. Yeah, yeah and just as soon not. Okay. Um, uh, poor guy's no longer with us. He's since passed away. But at any rate, he was totally qualified, had worked on other major tours, was a good guy, but for one reason or another, Prince Chick didn't like him, dropped a dime on him, Prince didn't like him. The band loved him. 
And we were about two or three weeks into the tour, if that, and Prince called me to his dressing room before a show, and he said, I want you to fire so-and-so. And I actually sucked it up and tried to make a, a case because I felt it was totally unfair. It was, he, he just plain, for whatever stupid reason, just didn't like him. The guy hadn't done anything wrong. He was perfectly qualified. It was going to give me personally a headache because now I had to replace him in the middle of a tour. I was going to say, how do you find a B person? You know, um, well, we did. You do. Right. I mean, that's part of having something filed away in the back of your head just in case. Right. But the long and short of it is, is, is I had to go to this guy and he basically didn't speak to me for about two years. And, and he actually Even came, if he knew that you weren't the person that pulled the trigger? Yeah. Or you're not allowed to say, look, yeah. I love you, but dog. No, I, that, that's exactly what I said. That you got to know this isn't coming from you, the band. They adore you. But there's a problem with the boss and he wants somebody else. And I work for him and I don't have a choice. And it was really, really uncomfortable because I cared about this guy. It was, it was unfair. Okay. Um, but he was the gold makes the rules. And, I mean, deep down the guy understood. He got it. But from that point on, he actually ended up opening a business in L.A., and um, I would occasionally drop by his business, and and it it was always awkward. And he was close to Gwen. I mean, it was you know right. it was really awkward. Um, on the other hand, on the Purple Rain tour, Prince's business manager found a tour accountant that he assigned to the tour, mm-hmm. and this guy came on the road, and he too had worked on other tours. He had a resume. None of us knew him, but, you know, he's going to be the tour accountant, and that's fine. He, you know, the business manager who we all knew and had a close relationship with trusted him, so I had no reason not to trust him. So this was Purple Rain. We played Detroit. We end up in Greensboro, which I think was the second stop, and Big Chick comes to me, and he says, Hey, buddy, what do you know about this accountant dude? I said, Nothing. I guess he's okay. He said, well, he was chatting with me and talking about he thinks you're overpaid. And he was talking about that, that they could get a good tour manager for less money and this one. And he didn't like Bill Reeves. He thought he was overpaid and some of the band is overpaid. And he was just, and I said, Chick, you just don't like him. You're dropping a dime on him by saying this. Are you serious? That he actually is discussing people's salaries with you. And he says, no, man, I don't really have a horse in this race, but the guy ain't cool. Um, Mm. I called the business manager in L.A., and I said, I need somebody else. We were going to Philly. Thanksgiving. Yep. And we we actually, where did we go first? I think we went to D.C. next because we, we, we busted from D.C. to Philly. I'll never forget we busted as opposed to flying. And um, I called the, the business manager from D.C. and said, I want this guy out of here. And he said, well, what happened? Did and you verify? Huh? Did you verify? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I went to him. He denied it. Because my and, first thought was, all yeah, right, is yeah, chicken maybe, agitator? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and he could be. But I went to the guy and talked to him, and it was obvious that he, his whole attitude, he's like, well, you know, I was just thinking that, you know, we need to streamline this, and, you know, all I'm doing is trying to protect the artist. And, and I'm like, okay, you're the one guy in this whole crew the artist doesn't even know. 
Right. And this is my house. And if you want to streamline something because you think it's the right thing to do, then you should have come to me at the bodyguard. And I'll have that conversation with you because I'd appreciate if you can help us make more money. But don't be coming in my house behind my back. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I called the business manager and said, I don't want to see him after tomorrow. He rode the bus with us to D.C. to Philly. We got to the hotel in Philly, and there was a message waiting for him to get on the first plane out. The next morning, everybody said, what happened to the accountant? So it, it totally depends. I you see. Know, it, it, it just totally depends. And um, the first lesson is don't hire your friends. Son, you out. No. <laughs> we stop hey. telling him how to fire people more right, easily. For real. For real. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> Let me just mark this off. Do not ask for a raise. Because no. <laughs> I, have, I have had a situation um, in the last 10 years where I hired a friend mm-hmm. who was qualified, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason didn't satisfy the, the situation and, and, or the artist. Mm-hmm. And I hesitated to fire him, and I should have. If it had been anybody else, I would have replaced him. Right. Um, and I didn't because I, I punked out. Next subject. <laughs> Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurter to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we wrapped up, I've heard, I quasi heard Shep Gordon's version of this, only because he's owner of Carlos and Charlie's. Mm -hmm. And we've had Huey Lewis on the show, and we're just discovering that Huey Lewis sang what was supposed to be Prince's parts on We Are the World. Can you, I've never asked you this question. What the hell actually happened the night of the American Music Awards? And why, how did he get the word that there was a song called We Are the World and he's expected to participate? Like, I would assume that the call would have came to you first. No. It, it oh, that's to, a Farnoli it thing. Farnoli. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Not yeah. to you. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I mean, I was involved in the conversations, and, and Farnoli pitched it to him, said, here's what Quincy's doing. He's reached out. He really wants you on this. Here's who everybody else is going to be there. And Prince said, no. He was just not interested. It's just, no. I'm, oh, I'm, okay. I'm not going to be like everybody else. But he did contribute a song ultimately to the sure. to the full yeah, album, and, and, and he offered to do that at the beginning. He's like, "Yeah, I'll give him a song for the album, but I, I'm just not that guy. I don't do group things that I don't have any control over." Yeah, okay, I mean, that's yeah. pretty much what he says in the song. Hello, you know, that's yeah. understandable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, but but um, but that night know. at Carlos and Charlie's, like, what happened well, what, exactly? What what happened is is we tried to convince him, like, okay, you're not going to do that. But understand something, this recording session is bigger than the award show. This is like the biggest thing of the year because everybody's there. And by you not doing it, you can't go out clubbing. That was an actual concern of you guys back then? It was a huge concern. Like, this could be a PR disaster if yes. Prince is like, why are you not singing for Starving Children? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, see, I would think like now, just been like, uh, Rihanna no, no, couldn't no. make it. Well, maybe now, but but there wasn't no Prince couldn't make it because um, Quincy was pissed. He's like, who does he think the the reaction was from him and Lionel Richie was? Who does he think he is? Michael's here. Diana Ross is here. Fucking Ray Charles is here. Waylon Jennings is here. Okay. <laughs> who does he think he is? Waylon <laughs> <laughs> Jennings no, 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 is no joke. Well, no, because Waylon left, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was going no, to say, it, it you can say Dan Aykroyd. And, and, uh, or no, Rick Moranis. Wasn't Rick was, Moranis there? No, no Dan, it was Dan, Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd. Okay. Yeah. The, Canadian, the Canadian who was part of USA for Africa. Right. That's him. Um, but no, it, it was a serious concern. So they just literally thought that he would jump at this opportunity. I suppose. Oh. I mean, you know, who does he think he is? Parker he goes at the door and everybody else who's famously private and and diva-ish, no more than Diana Ross. Right. Right? And and Bob Dylan. Michael was no joke. You right. know. So I mean if if they can do it, why can't he do it? Not to mention the fact that it's a cause he should be associated with. Um, so, so I, that, well, was, I still think it, it was, was the a, wisest decision. 
I'm not saying it wasn't, but the issue wasn't whether he did it. It was to Quincy because he took it personally because that's just how right. you, you don't know. say no to Quincy. Exactly. And Harry Belafonte. Exactly. But the, the issue was don't go out drinking in clubs when everybody else is doing that because the media was out there. I mean, you have the, this was a big event. Right. And everybody at the awards was talking about it. See at the studio, you know, was, this was huge. There's never been an, uh, an assemblage of that many people to make one record on on that level. I mean, it, was, it was crazy. It was unimaginable. Somebody said you're going to have all of those people in a recording studio at the same time. You'd be like, what? I don't think so. So we begged him, and we had a plan. We were staying at the Westwood Marquee out in Westwood. That was still back then? Yeah, it was kind of one of the hot hotels at that point. Oh, okay. And it was also off the beaten path because it was all the way west. Right, okay. And um, we went back to the hotel to celebrate, and we, we I got Bobby and Vicky was there, and Gwen was there, and we all went up to his suite and hung out. And I said, okay, none of us are going to bed early tonight. We're going to hang out with him because we got to keep him in the hotel. So we got to create... So your plan was to there distract was a, him? Absolutely a plan. Is that a party with six people? Well, there were more. The whole band was there and a few other people and, you know, but it was basically in-house because that's how he likes to socialize. He doesn't let anybody come hang in the hotel suite. Right. But the whole point was just to, you know, let's let's keep the talk going. It was a great night. We won awards and we should celebrate and let's toast and even have a couple extra drinks so maybe he'll fall asleep because he wasn't a drinker. Right. Know, he was like he'd have two drinks in Carlos and Charlie's and be sitting on the floor giggling, <laughs> um, literally, right. literally. Um, Lightweight. Yeah, when it came to drinking, absolutely. Yeah. So that that was the whole plan, and and I, I guess it got to be about one o'clock, maybe one thirty. I can't tell you exactly what time, and. Um, we finally figured, okay, and there was a piano in his suite, and he was playing, and, you know, it was, you know, big party. It was the in-house, all of us celebrating because it had been a great night. Right. And um, so finally figured it was safe, and I was exhausted, so Gwen and I went to our room, and the little party broke up. Right. And I'm thinking, mission accomplished. It's all good. About 3 o'clock in the morning, the uh-huh. phone rings in my room, and it's Chick. Buddy, we got a problem. That's how it always starts. <laughs> how many times? Wait, wait. Pause. How many times have you gotten a call from Chick where it's, "Buddy, we got a problem"? Not that often. We didn't have a lot of problems, but so you already were bracing yourself. No, I thought we were cool. I thought mission accomplished. He okay. said he's had a couple drinks. He's getting sleepy. He's you know he had his his fun with his with his posse. Right. And we gave him all the props he needed to feel important and feel good about the night, you know. And he was already talking about the song he was going to do for the album that Steve reminded us of. So I'm thinking we're good. Well, not only did he call Chick to go out after we all disappeared, and they also had, I think Wally was with them, Wally Safford, and another bodyguard named Larry. And they went to Carlos and Charlie's, and some paparazzi mobbed the car. Uh. And they got into a, a 
pushing. I guess they tried to stick the camera in the window, the car window, or something. And, and, and at any rate, there was a spat, and the photographer said that he had been attacked. Right. And um, um, I guess Larry, the bodyguard, who was like twice your size. I mean, the guy was freaking huge. He's like, he was like Tyson Fury, huge, and. Um, I guess he did push him or shove him or smack him or something. I don't know what he did. Right. At any rate, the police locked up Larry. So it wasn't just about Prince having this issue that is now going to be in the press. But you also had our bodyguard who's on tour with us in jail. So I had to deal with that. I had to get him out. And sure enough, USA Today and a lot of the papers, they're talking about Prince attacking a photographer at Carlos and Charlie's while the whole record industry is doing We're the World. And it's exactly what happened. So do you think it was ego that made him not want to participate in that? Or, like, he's notorious for not letting people watch him record his vocals. Do you think that might have played a part of it? I never thought of that. That, that might have been part of it, but he wasn't going to be doing really lead vocals, so I don't think that was that big of an issue. It's like he never never wanted to be part of anything that that he didn't have control over. I mean, if you if you think of all the other people's records that he appeared on, they were almost always tracks he produced mm -hmm. or had input or yeah. had control. Yeah. He just and the same goes with with Except James for Sessions. Star 69. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gonna play like this, pal? No, right. Yeah, play. but then you guys mixed him like so you can't hear him. So, is he even really there? Yes, he's there. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> and that, and you know what? Now that Huey, Huey, so Huey reveals that um, I didn't know Shep owned Carlos and Charlie's. Yeah, so he has a story. Like he, he has a Eddie Murphy. That was uh, our hang. I, yeah, he. Shep was part owner of Carlson Charlie's. He tells the story of uh, Eddie Murphy getting into a, a a tussle with a fan the night before his first day of shooting Beverly Hills Cop, mm. and so Eddie actually has to go to the Beverly Hills jail, <laughs> <laughs> and it so took method acting. <laughs> And it took, I've, I guess, the president of Paramount had to call up uh, Shep to see if Shep could pull strings. Shep had, like, pulled with the Beverly OPD back then or whatever mm -hmm. and said, look, this guy has to be on set tomorrow at 5 a.m., yada, 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 woo, 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 and took a lot of easing into that. Mm -hmm. But Shep also remembers uh, that night. That's how I knew that he owned, was gotcha. part owner of yeah. Carlos and Charlie. The thing is, is that when Huey Lewis reveals, so there's a point when Huey's like telling what the experience is like, and I think at at the last minute they realize, shit, we don't know about to sing Prince's part, and just at, at the last minute, Quincy's looking left, yeah, Huey, you mm -hmm. sing it, mm -hmm. and then I realized, oh, Michael Jackson, you slide devil, like you purposely set up this 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 game of horse once again for Prince to follow you and it's done in a key Prince rarely sings in in uh E minor it's it's too, it's too high for him to sing it's too low for him. like mm -hmm, he, mm -hmm, he rarely mm -hmm. sings mm -hmm. 
It was Shagadelicas and E minor. Like I can count like and and Dorothy Parker. He changed the speed of his voice on that song too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Shagadelic is mm-hmm. done in mm-hmm. that and you know, Dorothy Parker is more him going all over the place but yeah. not sticking in that key. So I can't imagine him singing I've never heard him sing a song E minor. So when I realized that, I was like, Oh damn. Michael Jackson set him up. Set him up again. Wait, I don't want to end it on a bad Prince story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's enough. uh, Um. No, okay. For you, Purple Rain was the most historical, and yeah, I mean, as a tour, it had to be. I mean, with James Brown, we didn't tour; we worked. It's so it, it, there were certain gigs that were more significant than others, but but it, it's it's hard to isolate a tour because we just worked all the time. Fifty one weeks out of the year, exactly. Right? Okay, so my last question is: What do you think you have a top three? Damn, this show is good. Moment, and I know that most of the time you're backstage, you know, handling business preparing for like do you have you ever watched any of your client shows from beginning to end from yeah, the front of the on house on occasion sure sure just um, for nothing to do or just just to make sure that nothing goes wrong like are you looking at the lights or are you just there like okay i i trust that for the next hour and a half the world's not going to come to an end and blah 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 has this backstage or there was a James Brown show at the at the Old Spectrum in Philly, and the okay. Dells were on the show. Right. And the Dells were red hot at the time, and they killed. And James was backstage. I tell this story in the book. He was backstage pacing, going berserk. He told Danny Ray to go out there and pull him off stage. They're staying on there too long. They had they had the crowd in the palm of their hands, and now they're blowing it because they didn't. They're not professionals. They don't know when to come off. And it was all because they were killing. The place was going berserk. Mm-hmm. And wait, was their stage though that good, or is this the hits, or just M- Marvin Jr. was just the god of singing? They could sing. The Dells were no joke. I mean, they had the typical choreography, and they were good at it. But but, and a couple of them were decent-looking guys. But I mean, they weren't the Temptations. But goddamn, they could sing. Oh, Marvin Jr. was no and, joke, man. Yeah. And neither was Johnny Carter. Or, yeah, yeah, the yeah. high voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And their harmonies, they, they, their group harmonies tended to be a little more sophisticated than the average doo-wop group. Right. Um, and they, and they, had, they had a string of great songs. Stepney, mm-hmm. before Everyone Was Fire. Right. He did their biggest hits. Um and they were killing. This was right at the peak of their, their thing. James was going crazy. I've never seen him like that. And it really was remarkable to me because I'd never seen him actually show any nerves like that. And he, I mean, he was dressed and pacing and smoking a cigarette, which he never did until he, he would smoke. He, he didn't smoke, but he would smoke a cigarette as he walked to the stage and then hand it to somebody as he walked onto the stage. And I guess it had something to do with his voice. It, he, he believed it did something for his voice. That That's where up. that rasp came from? <laughs> Unless it was just a nervous habit. Or a, is this 1970? This is 70 or 71. I can't remember. Oh, which. this is super prime, James. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That guy was scared? Yeah. Wow. 
I thought you meant mustache, James. No, 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 no. no. This, this, this was no facial hair, James. <laughs> this was Afro, James. Side and, note, and, and, and if any, this is 1970, my parents are at the show. Probably so. <laughs> um, wow. Because I, my mom said that my first kicks were at a Dell's concert. Huh. There you yeah. go. Hi, Mom. Anyway, okay. go ahead. So you were there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say, if, if you remember the spectrum, the stage was in the round. Yeah. In the middle of the arena. Mm-hmm. And it actually revolved, very slowly revolved. So the idea was that every seat would get a front row view at some point. Spectrum or Valley Forge Music Fair? Spectrum. Okay, Definitely so Spectrum. They, okay. Yeah, they had one. It's not the only place that had it. but Right. Yeah. I hear you. Anyway, long story short, place is sold out. It's packed. It's really a big show. And he comes out. And in order to get to the stage, because it's in the middle of the arena, you got to create a, a oh. space to get from the locker rooms across mm-hmm. to the stage. And, of course, there's security, and you create a, a human fence with right. security and so on and so on. And, and, I mean, he got mobbed. I mean, they were people were diving over the security just to tear at him. He got to the stage. His jacket was already torn. I mean, literally, he hit the stage with, it, it, it was kind of a shirt jacket. It was mm-hmm. like a jumpsuit type thing, very 70s, and, and it was torn. And he looked a little bit disheveled because he'd gone through this. And it was probably the most intense show I've ever seen him do before or since. I mean, it was just absolutely on fire. And memorably so. And I was, I, Who was the band? Probably so. It was, it was Boosie and them. And I can't remember if you it don't was have any bootleg recording of this. Not or? that show, Mm-mm. no. Um, but I mean, he was just amazing. He was just, just, just the, the band was tight. Clyde was there; he had come back, so we had Clyde and Jabbo both on stage. I can't remember if Pinkney was back yet, probably, because he was had to have been. Yeah, he had come the, back if it was that good. But it was just and in the place, and of course, a lot of it had to do with the audience was amped. It, it, it was just. People went berserk. Um, so that's memorable. But quite honestly, and the Prince Fanatics will hate me for this, the most musically gratifying shows I've been part of since my James Brown years were D'Angelo. Yeah, they're going to hate you for wrap that. Up. Okay, definitely ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Don't for... do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not fair. That's not fair. Come on, man. Yeah, seriously. Dude, but... No question. Our show was just, by the transitive axiom, the show was a, a parade love letter tour? to parade. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. do you see how he says our show? He doesn't realize I could be talking about the more recent shows with Chris <laughs> Wow. <Dave. laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, you tell me, Alan Leeds. <laughs> Good one, good one, good one. Um, no, seriously, I, 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 I play. I agree with you. I play tapes of those shows like they're new records. They're in steady, constant rotation in my house. We're never going to get that live album, are we? That Voodoo live album. It's, no, we aren't. Yep. <laughs> Edit. Yeah. Edit. Wait. No, just, yeah. you only yeah. have to, that silence there. <laughs> there were some coded words there. No, there's always a possibility. You never, never say never. Um, that's the that's the one moment in my life where I felt I was living history in real time. 
like something historical. And it wasn't that because it wasn't because like that was my first taste of something major, you know, because by that point, like we had just broken through the other side as the mm-hmm. roots and, mm-hmm. you know, like just slowly started to creep to a satisfactory level of celebrity, whatever. But, um, you know, for me, nothing will ever beat that Minneapolis show. And, Minneapolis yeah, show. Oh, God. Prince fans will kill me. It was just... It starts... See, the, the Minneapolis show starts with... We, we were summoned to the park at 1 a.m. At 1 a.m. Well, are you talking about that experience or are you talking about the actual gig? No, 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 no. But that experience leads to the gig. Right, right. Of course. And... You know, it was a really weird night with him. I've had great nights with Prince. Mm -hmm. I've had weird nights with Prince. I've even had bad nights with Prince. But it's like we we were there for three hours. And to me, the highlight of the whole night. Now, we played with him for an hour. We sat in the studio with him for an hour, listened to music for an hour. And to me, the best part of the whole night was the 45 minutes we took out to watch an HBO special by a comedian named Dave Chappelle. Uh. That was on rotation in his nightclub. Mm-hmm. Yo, this guy's really funny. You sit and we sat and watched it. Mm-hmm. He had Dave on that one spe- on that VH1 special. Which one? The Love for One and Other special. Dave, Dave was on it? Yeah. Dave comes out like in the middle of it and does like a five-minute set or something like that. I was disinvited from that. Remember? Richie, yes. we were invited. Then I became disinvited. Oh, Even uh, Richie, um, the driver. Uh, wait, who's the driver? Robbie. Robbie, the uh, driver, like couldn't drive us in the gates because he had been banned from uh, Like we had to walk right. through the snow to get there. Not the snow. I, no, like I, I just remember he could – it was the summertime, right? Or I, I honestly don't well, No, it started, the show started in March – yeah, yeah, it was summertime. Yeah, it had to be early fall. Yeah, but I just yeah. remember that Robbie was like, I'm not allowed to drive through, so you guys right. are going to have to walk through. Right. Like that. mm-hmm. yeah. That's it, weird. Yeah. And, and that's where the night got weird. But and Robbie had worked for him for years. Right. You know, loyal, personal assistant, you know. Oh, uh, we know. Yeah. So, wait, don't we still have that, Robbie? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. And that was <laughs> August of 2000. Oh, damn, what the internet is amazing. Damn, and the, the show I saw was two days after that. What did you see? Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at the expo? No, uh, Murat. Murat Theater. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we left. Is there, there must be a Perkins restaurant or some sort of pancake house mm-hmm. that's near there. And Robbie took us to it. And mm-hmm. me and Dee were just, our first words was like, yo, man, I feel like we didn't know how to feel because the night was just weird. Mm-hmm. Like he was talking weird. One of you called me, and I don't remember who. And you said, we've been quiet in the car all the way, and I feel like I need a bath. Yeah, I, I said. <laughs> never forget it. I, it was such a weird violation because I'd never experienced, you know, now I'm very careful about like, oh, don't meet your idols. They might disappoint you. Mm-hmm. But that was such an ambush that we weren't ready for. Right. And we sat there for like three minutes. I was like, yo, like. Wait, was he trying to diss us or what do you what do you think that's from? Like we just sat there like not knowing what happened to us. It was like 
uh, some alien side got in your heads. He he didn't get in our heads. Yeah, he did. You just said he did. Basically, <laughs> it wasn't he. I was disappointed. He tried to get in our heads. Cause I, you know, I mean, no, no secret. I know he was like, you know, watch out for Alan Lee. He's like, you know, yep. whatever. And watch your tapes. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> I read his label, but I bootlegged all the stuff that's out there. Right? And so allegedly, we said, <laughs> I don't know. The, the, the next day, like you know, we we went to our rooms the next day, and then backstage. I was just, he was like, how you feel, man? He's, I don't know. And I was just like, yo, man, let's just, let's do it. Because the thing was, we wanted to know, was he going to come to the was show? Was he coming to the show? And he had conveniently, well, we should also preface that John Bream didn't help at all with this one. Like, John Bream probably wrote the most scathing Prince taunt. And I felt like he thought he was doing something good by like trying to provoke Prince into to showing up for or no, just to return to his to nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> so he wrote it's the this year whole. Two thousand. He wrote yeah, but he wrote this whole thing about like you know like a new kings in town. Da 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 da. And I read the article and I was like, oh, this is so over the top. Like, John, you're not helping. You're making people hate us. Mm-hmm. And. I don't know. It's just when we perform, when he performed Devil's Pie, he brought that Halle Berry energy. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time we got to, we asked your brother mm-hmm. to uh, solo on Lady, and it was just like I felt we were on fire. Like I thought we were going to levitate, and the audience was dancing, and I was nervous about all that. Like, we're in his town, and we know his spies are here and whatnot. I don't even believe that he went to Egypt that day. I just think he <laughs> <laughs> just told us that. <laughs> just the... No, he he knew enough to know you were going to kill, and he didn't want to be there. Ah, man, I wish, you know. It, it, it's it's that's, that's the side of him, God rest his soul, that just is so annoying and not necessary. Well, it's it's just like an, a, a brief, brief, really brief comparison. Talk about this in the book too. Um, for him to talk to you and D, and, and I remember D told me because John Bream had also done a story about me becoming D's part manager, co-manager, mm-hmm. and you know, it's a small media town, so that's a big deal, and. Prince said to D, so Alan Leeds, your manager? You know, just kind of like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, wouldn't you think that he would be proud that somebody who learned the business, a great part of the business through him, mm-hmm. with him, goes on and their career grows? The same way that he hired you because you were the James Brown guy. And here's the comparison. When Purple Rain blew up, James Brown did an interview with MTV for whatever reason. And one of the questions they asked him was, how do you feel about the fact that you're playing clubs and you got Michael Jackson and particularly Prince who are selling out arenas all over the world and they're basically this generation's version of you? And Brown says, well, 
It's a lot of my people over there in Prince's camp, you know, namely <laughs> Alan Leeds. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, Godfather, you know, but that was also him trying to take credit, credit for it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Right. it's like, well, that's because I let him have my people. But... But he was, the next time I saw him, I teased him about that, and he was, like, proud. I mean, he was like, you know, when I hired you, kid, I knew you were going places. And you got to be careful. Now, you're in, the, you're in the fast track now. And he gave me fatherly advice. But he was actually proud that somebody who was a novice under him had worked his way up to the point where he was on the biggest freaking tour of the decade. And, you know. Not so much. That ain't going to be Prince. And it, it was just unnecessary because Prince and I never really fell out. He called me, you know, usually when he's through with somebody, he's through. But he called me back to set up a Japanese tour for him in the 90s. Um, he needed somebody to deal with the promoters. I didn't go on the tour. But at that particular time, he didn't have a tour-worthy staff of, of, of backline people. And he said, I need you to find me a production manager, and I need you to negotiate the deal with Udo, the, pr the promoter in Japan. I owe him some dates, but I just need you to set up the crew and do some of the you know, do the tour manager stuff, but you don't need to go on the tour. Just hire somebody to go. And he's like, you know, it can't be like it used to be. You can't be calling me all the time. We're not going to hang out, but I, I'll pay you well and just do what you do. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, cool. You know, That's just, good for me yeah. too. Right, right. right. And then a couple of years later, he called me and asked me to do the liner notes for the hits package, um, which was the first ever collection of his records outside of sequenced albums. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and he said, and I said, okay, but and he said, well, there's certain things I want said. And I said, okay, so let me interview you. And he said, great, let's do that. And, of course, he had right of approval over the finished product. So quote, you, not quote, so, uh, you interviewed him? He literally sat on, uh, on the phone, and most of what's in those liner notes, all the little tidbits about each song, came from him. You recorded this? No. Oh, damn. Damn it, Alan. No. Because you knew I was going to ask. Yeah, I was yeah. like, come on, man. <laughs> It was all impromptu. If we had set it up in advance, I would, if you know me, you get the, the famous phone right. stuff. But no, it was just like we're, we're talking about it, and he says, well, just interview me. Come on, do it now. And I'm like, well, tell me the sequence. Tell me, you know, something. And with no preparation, we just, just, and he's telling me stuff. So, it, it, you know, there was some respect there. And we were cool, and occasionally I'd run into him on the road, or I dropped in at a release party once at, 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 at the, what used to be the Village Gate, and it was life for a minute, and so on. And, and you, you were know, there that night? Yeah. For emancipation? Was it emancipation? You were there with Chris. Okay. Yeah, I was there with Chris. Shit, I didn't know you, but that was 97. I didn't yeah. know you then. No. That's, that's, right. when I, that's the night I first met him. Yep. Nah. And I was not on the list, and, and there was a problem getting in, and Chris Chris said, this is Alan Leeds. You got to let him in, and just pulled one of those things. So I okay. got in, and Prince gave me a huge hug, and we talked for a few minutes. Oh, shit. You know, um, and, you know, so, I mean, this, it, it's, I don't get it. I just don't get it. It used to annoy the fuck out of me because. Well, that means you know, that you did something I didn't right. Have beef. <laughs> that means you did something right. Like if you weren't a threat, there's an artist yeah, well, now. That's 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 it. That's it. And 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 you got to understand when we came through with Voodoo, and particularly in light of the video, 
and how everybody was obsessing over the video, which mm-hmm. became MTV's video of the year. D'Angelo's um, untitled video. Yes. Sorry. And, you know, that, that was a threat to him. He didn't know how far this was going to go. That was a threat because this is, this is the kind of commotion that he got when he broke out. Exactly the same kind of commotion. It's like here's this sex symbol, this this crazy guy that girls are going berserk over, and he wears you know tights and crazy clothes that men don't wear. And, and the song now, was obviously influenced by. Sure. Well, yeah. what wasn't? You well, know, yeah. You know. But I mean, that one was almost like a rewrite of "She's Just a Baby." Oh, let's be honest. <laughs> we didn't know that then, right? Really? I'll be honest. We didn't know no, that. I didn't. We didn't know that then. Maybe Sadiq did. I mean, I. I don't know. Who cares? Nah, they didn't. Who cares? Yeah. It, you know, it worked. Um, so I, I, I think he really did, and that's that's why the that's why the weirdness that night. So uh, your third one, Black Messiah tours. Really? Mm-hmm. Over anything with Prince? Yeah. Wow. That's just about personal where my spot is musically. Um, ah, okay. It, it's it's about the churchiness. It's about the fact that he had amazing bands yeah. that had more freedom to play than Prince's bands did. Prince's bands were always scripted. It's not they weren't good bands. It's not that they couldn't play. But everything they did was scripted. Mm-hmm. It feels like D was going for more of the, the after show vibe. Yeah, but even that, I don't think, gives it credit because there's a there's a jazz mentality yeah, yeah, yeah. that goes with um, the voodoo tour was a little more scripted than the stuff that we did later because the stuff we did after Black Messiah was a little looser and they, actually we would change set lists from night to night, night, to night quite yeah. a bit and 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 he. He didn't have the same relationship with Chris Dave that he had with you. So as a result, Chris would go rogue occasionally. And it might drive D crazy. And then there were nights where D would be like, yo, I love that shit. That's dope. And then the next night, Chris would do something crazy. And D would be like, man, would you tell him to just keep time? I need a mirror. You know, it was that kind of thing, yin and yang. But as a music head, I'm loving this shit. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sitting there watching him and Pino every night, and it's like every night they surprise me with something. So I'm I'm like pretending it's jazz, and I'm not even listening to everybody else. I'm just listening to the rhythm section, and Sharky is like amazing. Um, you know, so so here's an artist who has had two landmark bands. Now, overall, Soultronics, it's that's the band of the the era. That's no, there won't be a better. Better, for lack of a better way of putting it, soul band. Um, probably in our lifetime. Um, the Roots and his next band are probably next. Well, let's hope so. And it's a lot of the same <laughs> people, so duh. Let's hope but, so. But that's what, Matt, see, what got me into James Brown wasn't just James Brown, it was the band. I love music, and, and and I'm the person who listens to a record and doesn't even hear the singing until I hear the track. And if the track doesn't move me, I don't care what the singing is. And I don't care if I like the singer or not. If the track is smoking, I like the record. And forget lyrics. I don't even know what lyrics are. 
Your lyrics always come last for me, too. Um, sometimes they don't even come at all to me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I don't even care. Yeah. Unless right. they're unusually profound. I mean, you know, what's going on? At sometimes I find out the lyrics and I'm just like, oh, maybe I should just continue ignoring them. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. So when's your next book coming out? <laughs> <laughs> got to figure out what it is first. And I, I got a I, couple ideas. I've actually started on one, but... Um, I don't know. It's 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 like I'm D'Angelo. The thing I want to do the most is not the most commercially viable. So <laughs> I've got to figure out, like, okay, the one I want to write, can, can it actually get published? And is there a chance somebody would publish it, A and B, could sell a few copies? Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, everybody says write a Prince book. That's the fastball down the middle because there's more of a market. And um, for the kind of things I would write about, it's probably the most marketable idea, but uh, there's so many Prince books. I, but I, I will say that— just don't know what I no, want to you, write. No, but you and Gwen's take in Wax Poetic, I've read that 10, 15 times at least. Like, I think really I feel like if there's someone that would give us the definitive oral history— of at least the, I mean, I'm limited by just saying the Purple Rain tour or whatever. I think all Revolution members would trust you to talk to them or whatever. I feel like you could get out and out, or maybe not. <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you know, the godfather oh. of all tour management, <laughs> please. <laughs> On Quest Love Supreme, the quiet oh, edition. Uh, we miss you, Laia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so, for more with Alan Lee's, definitely check out our interview from 2016 with him in the archives. Yes, the archives. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be here for a third round of Quest Love Supreme. Then we and can you, beat Jimmy Jam's record. Yes. Because I think we're uh, about tied now. Yes, you're so <laughs> tied with him. All right. All right. Uh, on behalf of Sugar Steve and Boss Bill and Unpaid Bill and Fonte and Laia. Bro, bro. <laughs> they ain't here. Yeah, no. They're, they're, they're coming on one day. Uh, this is Quest Love. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. Yeah, and this is Quest Love me. Supreme, iHeartRadio. See you on the next go-round. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.